Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. After our usual ramble of generally useless commentary, we'll ask, If justice is blind, can you dress casually for court? Are you interested in acquiring some baby chickens? How would you like groceries with your newspaper? Ever wondered what spies do in a lockdown? And have you been waiting for the 2019 Ig Nobel Awards? Your wait is over. All these questions and more will be answered along with a special Old Dogs Conversation with Dr. Thomas Cole, an old dog authority and author of Old Man Country. Stay with us. Paul, what's on your mind? Well, here's what's on my mind. And, you know, we're going into some strange places here, Jim. I find myself being very introspective these days. Oh, really? I find myself reading more and being more thoughtful about what I'm reading. In the, in the past, when I was reading the paper, for example, I was drawn to pieces that we could use as a pod nugget. Um, but now I'm drawn more towards human interest kinds of stuff, if that makes any sense. Uh, and also, I find myself getting lost in my thoughts a lot. Wow, that's and, a and that's dangerous place. Thing. Dangerous place Very to be lost in. Dangerous place to hang out. You're right. <laughs> How about yourself? Well, I have to say that I don't spend too much time uh, examining my brain uh, I really think that this time of separation has uh, certainly caused me to reflect on my relationships quite a bit, and my friends, my family, my wife, uh, positively. I think I've got great relationships. But I've also noticed uh, a lot more attention uh, to the natural world, uh, really enjoying what I see, what I hear, uh, except for the uh, neighbor's yappy dog. Uh, I love the uh, sound of the birds, and I love to watch what's going on in the sky. Uh, the um, purple martins have come back, and uh, they're my favorite bird. Because? Well, because they're so playful. You know, they swarm around way up in the air, and they just love to just play around up there they swirl and twirl and fly around and dive bomb and stuff like that they just seem to be having a great time so i love that sort of thing i love the sound of the wind in the trees uh and when we go out sometimes we go to a state park uh and it's wonderful to experience just that feeling of stuff that's still going on. They have no idea. The alligators have no idea that we're in the middle of a crisis. They're, you know, crisis, what crisis, as far as they're concerned. They don't care. They just keep on rolling along. I didn't realize you were hanging out with wildlife like this. Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Does this have any interest to anyone? No, no, absolutely not. But I, I think there there may be some therapists out there who are enjoying this immensely. <laughs> it sounds like to me you are uh, seeking out experiences uh, connecting with nature. But I would uh, suggest that maybe this is something you find relaxing. 
Uh, and I know that you, uh, you do have those days when you have a lot of work to do. And so, uh, you know, stripping naked and running out in nature is probably a way that you get release. Um, actually, I'm sorry, did I read into what you were saying? <laughs> I think you have a misinterpretation of my connection uh, with nature, but that's oh. all right. That's all right. I just don't want that image in your head. Which one? Stripping naked or yeah, watching yeah. birds? No, uh, the, the former. Ah, okay. Well, Paul, I found this very therapeutic. I'm glad that you were able to perceive that sort of tendency in me. Well, Jim, you have nothing but tendencies. I've got to tell you. <laughs> Here's a word of caution for attorneys who are teleconferencing. You need to watch your appearance for a court appearance. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for April 28, 2020. Judge Dennis Bailey of the 17th Judicial Circuit of Florida thought that some lawyers in his online court hearings were being too casual. In his words, one male lawyer appeared shirtless, and this is the one, this is the capper, and one female attorney appeared still in bed. Maybe she was working undercover. The judge was referring to hearings in family court, not criminal cases, but still, would you want your attorney in a divorce case to show up in her jammies? That might reflect oh, no. lack of seriousness that could affect the settlement. Judges can be so touchy. Last month, the Judicial Conference of the United States temporarily approved the use of video and video conferencing for some criminal proceedings in federal court. So, more attorneys will be dealing with the unfamiliar challenges of what to wear on camera. On the other hand, if justice is blind, should it matter if you dress casually for court? Okay, now here's a question for Judge Bailey. What's he wearing under those robes? That occurred to me. We have no idea what he's wearing under his robes. Or ever has, for that matter. Well, I hope he's comfortable, whatever it is. <laughs> we all have heard of people stress buying during the current crisis. But hoarding baby chickens? This item is from the New York Times for March 28, 2020. For chicken hatcheries, Easter is a busy time for selling baby chicks. But given these difficult financial times, there is a greater than usual demand. As a result, for the next few weeks, baby chicks are impossible to find. Apparently, when times are tough, people want chickens. I know I do. Chick sales go up during stock market downturns and presidential election years. Granted, some of the current sales are for parents looking for a project for their out-of-school children. But most sales are also motivated by fear of hard times ahead. One musician in Austin bought four hens and a rooster a week ago. She admitted that food security is one of the main reasons for her purchase. According to the Agriculture Department, wholesale egg prices rose 50%, and many stores have sold out of their supply. A word of caution. Raising chickens is not the same as buying a puppy. The chicks are cute and cuddly. But grown chickens can be noisy and antisocial, and they don't provide a never-ending supply of eggs. Now get this, chickens can live for 10 years, but hens go through henopause at around 5 or 6 years, and then they stop laying eggs. So you have to decide if your chicken will be dinner or a noisy, free-loading pet. As for me, make mine extra crispy. 
A side effect of COVID-19 seems to be increased concern for others forced to stay at home. This positive pod nugget is from the Washington Post for March 31st, 2020. Some people who subscribed to the Star-Ledger in Newark, New Jersey, found a note rolled up in their newspaper. It was from the man who delivered their newspapers, and it was a lifeline for seniors who feared leaving their home. The note read, My name is Greg Daly, and I deliver your newspaper every morning. I understand during these trying times, it's difficult for some to get out of their house to get everyday necessities. I would like to offer my services free of charge to anyone who needs groceries, household products, etc. Greg made the offer to all 800 of his newspaper customers and anyone else in his delivery area. To handle the requests for help, he enlisted his wife, three grown children, and his mother-in-law. After he finishes delivering papers at 7 a.m., he and his family split up the shopping lists and make the day's deliveries. Hats off to Greg and his family. They join a long list of helpful heroes during these trying times. I know my paper boy doesn't do that. Hmm. Well, maybe he's uh, Greg Weekly. Try him next week. Oh, I see. That was pretty good. Thank you. I bet here's an aspect of the new normal that never occurred to you. Even spies now work from home. This pod nugget is from Time Magazine for April 6th through 13, 2020. On a recent day in a foreign country, an American spy was forced to cancel a meeting with a promising recruit. The usually crowded bars and restaurants that provided cover for a clandestine meeting were empty due to COVID-19. So the meeting never happened. The government has invested heavily in technology like spy satellites and other gadgets that watch, listen, and collect information. But only human intelligence can reveal how information was acquired by an agent and their motivation for sharing it. Now think about it. How could James Bond seduce a beautiful foreign agent while standing six feet apart and wearing a hospital mask and gloves? Fortunately, all our adversaries are in the same situation. So, until this crisis is over, our spies are at home. So, they will have to switch their focus from spy crafts to home crafts. The Improbable Research website celebrates research that initially seems laughable even if it may have a useful purpose. Every two months, they publish a newsletter that celebrates research of questionable utility. And every year, they award their Ig Nobel Awards to the most questionable. So it is our great pleasure to present several of the Ig Nobel Awards for 2019. The Medicine Prize is awarded to Silvano Gallus from Italy, who collected evidence that pizza might protect against illness and death if... The pizza is made and eaten in Italy. So is this native Italian promoting pizza or tourism? The Medical Education Prize goes to Karen Pryor and Teresa McKeon from the United States. They used a simple animal training technique called clicker training to train surgeons to perform orthopedic surgery. We don't know if the technique made them better surgeons, but they can now sit and roll over when they hear a clicker. The Anatomy Prize goes to Roger Musset and Boras Ben-Gudifa for measuring scrotal temperature asymmetry in naked and clothed postmen in France. This is real, isn't it? The real question here is not what side of a postman's scrotum is warmer, but rather, why do we need to know? 
The chemistry prize goes through a group of Japanese researchers, S. Watanabe et al. Their research estimated the total saliva volume produced per day by a typical five-year-old child. In case it ever comes up in conversation, that amount is 500 milliliters. Okay. The engineering prize goes to an Iranian named Iman Farabakshish for inventing a diaper-changing machine for use on human infants. The device was actually awarded a U.S. patent as an infant washer and diaper-changing apparatus and method. We understand that changing diapers is unpleasant, but what parent would put their child in an appliance with moving parts? And finally, the physics prize is shared by a group of researchers from six different countries. Patricia Yang et al. Who is all? Uh, uh, everyone else. Oh. Their research was a study of how and why wombats make cube-shaped poo. <laughs> Here's some more information you will never use. Wombats are a burrowing animal native to Australia, in oh. case you did not know. Mm. They use their square poo to mark their territory. The process of forming cubes of waste is assisted by the muscles that move food in along the lower intestine. These muscles vary in thickness as much as three times, which helps shape the corners of the expelled cube. Our congratulations to all the winners of the 2019 Ig Nobel Prizes. If you're interested in their 60-second acceptance speeches and other funny stuff, go to the Improbable Research website, www.improbable.com. In our last episode, we reviewed a book called Old Man Country by Dr. Thomas R. Cole. We were so intrigued by the book that we invited Dr. Cole to have a conversation with us. Among much else, Dr. Cole is the McGovern Chair in Medical Humanities and Director of the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. You have an undergraduate degree in philosophy, two graduate degrees in history, you should be teaching history at a small liberal arts college. How did you get so off track? Well, I don't know. For one thing, I couldn't get a job in history when I finished my Ph.D., <laughs> which uh, made it hard to teach. <laughs> and then uh, I got a job in history of medicine, but it was really in medical humanities in Galveston. And I told my wife, look, I just need one break, just one break, and I'll be fine. And what was that break? And so, I, well, the chance to work at the Institute for Medical Humanities and build a career of teaching and writing and filmmaking and consulting. I mean, I've just been very fortunate. And I, actually, I have to say, if I had been confined to a department of history as a teacher, I probably would have gone nuts. I, I just need to do more than one thing, for better and for worse. So your ADD is not diagnosed? Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> no, it's carefully medicated. <laughs> <laughs> Would you care to tell uh, us wait, wait. a bit about medical humanities? Sure. Um, so medical humanities was born sometime in the late 60s when we started to sense that medicine was becoming inhumane, that it gave doctors too much power, and that it was increasingly just about money. And so those of us who are interested in these topics whether we were historians or philosophers or literature people or religious studies people, we began sort of elbowing our way into uh, medical faculty and teaching and writing. You know, it became a scholarly field. I, I wouldn't wish this on you, but my colleagues and I wrote the first textbook in medical humanities a few years ago. And from a teaching point of view, we want to use the humanities to help 
medical students become more humane, become more compassionate, become more resilient. And, um, you know, we use the arts and, and literature uh, to foster introspection and self-knowledge. We use ethics to help them make difficult decisions in systematic ways. We use history to give people a sense of the context in which they're living. Like our pandemic has a historical context. It's not the only one there ever was. Um, it will go away. It won't wipe out as many people as the Spanish flu or the black pig, that kind of thing. So how has the medical community been receptive to what you're offering? Oh, at first it was tough. And there was a lot of pushback. Uh, like we were, you know, entering their terrain and who were we to tell them what to do? Well, it turns out we were on the right side of history. Patient rights became uh, a movement and a form of sort of political awareness that helped us. And now I think we're pretty well received. I'm on a couple of ethics panels that aim to help uh, clinicians make ethically justified decisions, where it's an, if it's an end-of-life decision and there's a conflict about withdrawing treatment, or um, it's the beginning of life treatment. Sometimes they come to us and say, is this ethical? You know, think we can do this? And, you know, we have general guidelines and policies. And so we offer them our perspective. We don't have authority, but we tell them as an ethics board what our opinion is, and we expect them to, to honor it. I mean, this COVID pandemic, for example, points to a weakness in our medical system that we've been you know, pointing out for years, which is the importance of public health. But so much of our uh, energy goes to saving individual people. That that's where the money is. That's where the research money is. That's where the procedure money is. And that's not a bad thing. I would never not want to save a person. But if you're looking at it from a holistic point of view, you, you have to think about supporting uh, public health departments, their personnel, their scientists. So those are the kind of things that, that I'm thinking about these days. I direct the Center for Humanities and Ethics at UT. Tom, from what we know about you, we know that there are many things that you're interested in, uh, the uh, whole process of aging being one of them. How do you find the time to work on all of the areas that interest you and accomplish so much? One thing, I've been fortunate. I've had resources, and I've had staff, and I've had faculty so I'm very privileged in my um, ability to leverage myself through other people. Uh, congratulations on Old Man Country. It seems to me that you started doing your interviewing before you had a clear picture of what the book would be. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it is true. That's the kind of person I am. I follow my nose until I either hit a blind alley or I keep going and something falls into place. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do, except I wanted to understand in depth what this transition is like for people who live into their 80s and 90s and begin to become frail. You know, this concept of the third age and the fourth age. You know, the third age is like the third quarter of life. And, you know, I'm 70. I'm in the third age, technically. And the four, I wanted to know about people in the fourth age. Um, how did they deal with physical decline or mental decline? Or how did they deal with their sexuality? Or what do they care about? Or what's most important to them? And I wanted to be able to learn that and pass it on to readers. Personal stories, to me, are the best way of 
learning about issues that you care about. You know, when I have a story like Dr. Cooley, who goes upstairs to try and help his wife who's fallen on the floor, they're both frail. He tries to get her up. They both fall on the floor. And the next morning, their daughter finds them holding hands. I mean, a story like that will tell you more than any statistic. You interviewed a lot of really um, well-known people, and I would assume that you got a few surprises in what they had to say. Uh, Could you share any of those with us? Yeah, I mean, the first person I interviewed, my wife's friend, very famous theologian, radical theologian, Walter Wink, was sort of in the middle of a Lewy body dementia. And he was one of the most brilliant theologians of his generation. And uh, what was I surprised about? Well, two things. I was surprised that um, from one minute to the next, he could be completely vapid. And then in the next, he could be really funny and right on target. And I think the other thing that surprised me was how scared I was to do it. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. Because to be a good interviewer, in my experience, you have to really open your heart wide. Otherwise, people don't trust you and won't give you what's inside them. I was talking to my wife yesterday, who's a therapist, and she said, one of the limits of therapists is feelings that they themselves do not want to face. And so I was afraid that I would become demented. I mean, not literally, but because I had to let it in. You know, I had to let in the confusion and the pain. I had to receive it in order to really have the best connection with him and interview possible. And what surprised me was that I was afraid. Um, I mean, I got over it, and I didn't let it show. Yeah, that was a fascinating chapter. Um, I was struck that the range of the people you interviewed, um, their outlook on life seemed to range from hopeful and positive to resigned to end of life. Did uh, yeah. did you see any common threads there? I think um, men who are disconnected from their feelings, which is pretty common compared to women, um, and especially uh, academics. Several of them said this. This may be the common thread. Um, I've had a good life. I don't want to die, but I'm not afraid of death they had gotten to a point where they felt that dying was part of living. Of course, they don't want pain. That's the major problem. They don't want to be asphyxiated. They don't want to be in pain when they die. Fifteen years ago, I would you know, have this sort of panicky feeling when I thought about dying or not being here. And um, over time, that has abated. doesn't mean that I don't get anxious or wouldn't feel it if I was dying, but I would hope I could come to some kind of resolution. I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, dying is part of living, and I believe that. Uh, It's another thing to feel that way uh, as you are leaving, as you're dying, as you are moving on, whatever metaphor we want to use for something we don't really know about. Tom, you had alluded to uh, another aspect of aging that I think a lot of people fear almost as much as dying, and that is relevance. Um, do you have any yeah. sense of well, what we can cling to when relevance stops? What is life after relevance? Yeah, that's a tough one. I think um, for those of us who've been so single-mindedly focused on a career or on work, uh, it's much harder 
Because when that's gone, what else is there that gives us validation? If we have friends, if we have a religious community, if we have a neighborhood, uh, if we have people we exercise with, if we have love relationships, those are all ways of, of being relevant because we matter to other people and we're relevant in that way. Or you shift, um, you shift a goal, a life goal, you volunteer, or you take another kind of form of work that's interesting to you. My way of thinking is um, to be of service in some way to serve other people is the way to continue to be relevant. One of the most interesting aspects of the book, as far as I was concerned, is how much of you you revealed in the course of interviewing people. Yeah, it took a lot. I realized that my agent told me and others told me over time, if this is just a series of interviews, you know, it'll be a book that's worth publishing, but it won't be a book that'll grab the reader's interest. It won't have a wider audience. And they, they just said, you have to make yourself a character and show yourself over time and pick the most meaningful episodes and take a deep breath and have courage. If you're a good writer, one of the things that you do is you get as deeply as you can into your own individual experience. And then ironically, it's a more universal thing. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. All our episodes are available on our website, www.olddogspodcast.com. And there are a lot more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon. <laughs>